Today on the Matt Wall Show, the Biden administration is explicitly discriminating against white people and men as it doles out COVID relief. This is what systemic racism actually looks like. So we'll talk about that today. Also, five headlines, including Trump's Facebook ban is upheld. Southwest kicks a three-year-old off a flight because although he was wearing a mask, they were afraid he might take it off at some point in the future. So they kicked him off. And South Carolina brings back the good old-fashioned firing squad which I think is a positive development. We'll talk about that, plus our daily cancellation and so much more today on The Matt Wall Show. We've only got a few more days until Mother's Day. Um, and let me give you, a, let, me, let me try to bail you out here and give you a great Mother's Day gift suggestion. And this is a great gift for any occasion and a great gift for yourself as well. That is Legacy Box. Legacy Box is a super simple mail-in service to have all of your videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, and pictures uh, digitally preserved on a thumb drive, DVD, or on the cloud. Legacy Box is a way for you to easily and affordably preserve your past. If you've got all those memories stored on those outdated you know, modes of technology, um, they're collecting dust, they might get damaged, you have a flood, or any, and, you, and you lose all that stuff forever. It's happened to many, many people. Uh, so use Legacy Box, and here's the process. It's very easy start to finish. You pack and send all the stuff you want to have preserved. The team digitizes everything uh, by hand on their end, and then they send the box. They, they send it back to you, and uh, that's it. You get back perfectly preserved digital copies on thumb drive, DVD, or the cloud, ready to watch and share and enjoy. Again, this is a perfect gift for Mother's Day. So for a limited time, Legacy Box is running a 50% off Mother's Day special. Order your Legacy Box today to take advantage of this incredible offer. This is one of the best discounts they've ever offered. Legacy Box is perfect for you or for someone you love. Go to LegacyBox.com slash Walsh and say 50% while supplies last. That's LegacyBox.com slash Walsh. It's not as easy as you may think to find a, a simple definition of the term systemic racism. Given that we hear it so often, wielded with such blithe certainty, you'd be forgiven for assuming that the phrase actually, well... I don't know, means something, but it takes some digging to discover what that meaning is, if there is any meaning to discover at all. An article in USA Today, published during the height of the BLM riots last summer, appears intent at first on answering the question. The headline says, what is systemic racism? Here's what it means and how you can help dismantle it. Okay, simple enough. The piece surveys various civil rights leaders and advocates, including the head of the NAACP and also the president of the racial justice advocacy group Race Forward, between these authoritative sources, the following definitions of systemic racism are offered. And I'm quoting now. Um, the complex interaction of culture, policy, institutions that holds in place the outcomes we see in our lives. Also, systems and structures that have procedures or processes that disadvantage African Americans. And also, systemic racism is naming the process of white supremacy. Okay, so to summarize... Systems and structures have procedures and policies which interact with cultures and institutions to create outcomes which lead to disadvantages caused by the process of white supremacy. Well, that clears things up. But the ambiguity, of course, is the point. If systemic racism has no clearly discernible definition, then the definition could be whatever the activist needs it to be in any given moment. Systemic racism, like so many other terms these days, see gender, whiteness, privilege, human rights, etc., means anything, and also everything, and also nothing, all at the same time. But if you're not satisfied with the fluidity of the term and you would like to settle on something more solid so that you can actually apply it to the real world in a meaningful way, then perhaps this definition that I found from the Alberta uh, Civil Liberties Research Center will suffice. This is what they say. 
Systemic racism includes the policies and practices entrenched in established institutions, which result in the exclusion or promotion of designated groups. Now, this is still wordier and vaguer than it needs to be, and it seems to dissemble a bit with the, with the word includes, you know, but it gets us closer to the answer. All we really need is the last part with a couple of additional qualifiers. Systemic racism, if it means anything, must mean the explicit and purposeful exclusion or promotion of designated racial groups by a powerful institution. That's a coherent and self-contained definition, which may render it useless to the racial justice activists, but makes it useful to those of us who are actually concerned about finding and exposing true examples of systemic racism in our society. And there are examples of it. On that note, here's an example that may be worth our attention. Breitbart reports, quote, Restaurants and venues owned by white men will be last in line for federal relief under President Joe Biden's Restaurants Revitalization Fund, prioritizing funds for women and minority groups. As part of Biden's American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, the Small Business Administration is opening the application process by which owners of restaurants, bars, and other venues can apply for federal relief to help make up for the loss of revenue as a result of economic lockdowns spurred by the Chinese coronavirus, uh, coronavirus crisis. The plan allows business owners to apply for relief of up to $10 million per business and no more than $5 million per physical location. Business owners do not have to repay the funds so long as the money is spent by March of 2023. The relief, though, is being prioritized based on race, gender, and whether or not business owners are considered socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. That's the report from Breitbart. We can refer to the Small Business Administration website to confirm Breitbart's reporting. The website lays out the process and the timeline for restaurant owners to, to apply for relief. The first three weeks are designated the priority period, kind of like priority boarding on Southwest Airlines uh, before you get kicked off for not having a mask on. And only the priority groups are, are going to be processed and funded during that priority period. Now, to discover what qualifies as a priority group, we are told to see below. And you got to scroll down a little bit, and then it clarifies that a priority group is a small business concern that is at least 51% owned by one or more indiv individuals who are women or veterans or socially and economically disadvantaged. But who counts as socially and economically disadvantaged? Once again, we're told to see below. So you do a little bit more scrolling, continuing the goose chase, and then we find this stipulation. Socially disadvantaged individuals are those who have been subjected to racial or ethnic prejudice or cultural bias because of their identity as a member of a group without regard to their individual qualities. Economically disadvantaged individuals are those socially disadvantaged individuals whose ability to compete in the free enterprise system has been impaired due to diminished capital and credit opportunities as compared to others in the same business area who are not socially disadvantaged. In other words... As long as you're not a white man who never served in the armed forces, you get to enjoy priority status. White men can go to the back of the line. How is it fair or legal to penalize business owners for their race and sex? And what in God's name does any of this have to do with COVID? Those are questions that you simply are not supposed to ask. There's no answer for them that they're going to give you anyway. The Small Business Administration is being straightforward in its discrimination against men here but they're being a bit more coy about the racial component. So it doesn't actually say anything about race specifically. It doesn't lay out the races that are included and not included. It doesn't explicitly state that white people are excluded. You need to read the subtext. But the subtext is written in big, bold, blinking letters, and, uh, and so you really can't miss it. On the other hand, 
The US, the USDA um, is handing out its own COVID relief under Biden's direction. And that agency is not in the slightest bit shy about the racial bigotry embedded into the process. Here's a report from CBS. It says a group of Midwestern farmers sued the federal government Thursday, alleging they can't participate in a COVID-19 loan forgiveness program because they're white. The group of plaintiffs, plaintiffs include farmers from Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Ohio. According to the lawsuit, the Biden administration's COVID-19 stimulus plan provides $4 billion to forgive loans for socially dis- disadvantaged farmers and ranchers who are black, American Indian, Hispanic, Alaskan Native, Asian American, or Pacific Islander. White farmers aren't eligible, amounting to a violation of the plaintiff's constitutional rights, the lawsuit contends. Yes, the lawsuit contends that, but uh, again, the agency's website confirms these contentions. An article on USDA.gov titled FAQs on American Rescue Plan Debt Relief for Socially Disadvantaged Borrowers begins with this. It says, earlier this week, we posted important information about the American Rescue Plan debt relief payments for socially disadvantaged producers. The American Rescue Plan includes provisions for USDA to pay up to 120% of loan balances as of January 1st, 2021 for Farm Service Agency direct and guaranteed farm loans and farm storage facility loans. And then it says, if you are a black Native American slash Alaskan Native, Asian American or Pacific Islander, or are of Hispanic slash Latino ethnicity with one of the loans listed above, you are eligible for the loan payment. All right. So whites need not apply. I mean, literally need not apply because you're not going to get it because you're white. Of course, the claim that all minority farmers are socially disadvantaged and that only minority farmers are socially disadvantaged is absurd on its face. One of the plaintiffs joining the lawsuit um, uh, is a man named Adam Faust. Okay, He's a disabled cattle farmer with spina bifida who lost one leg to a farming accident and the other leg to diabetes. The Biden administration offers him no relief at all on the basis that a legless, disabled, diabetic farmer has no social disadvantages because his skin pigment pigmentation is slightly lighter than some other farmers. This is not only insane and grotesque, but it's out-and-out racism. Systemic racism, to be exact. Because you have a powerful institution, namely the United States government, the most powerful, excluding one group based explicitly on their race while elevating other groups based explicitly on their race. Now, in our country today, there are no policies or laws, none, that expressly and intentionally elevate white people over racial minorities. You cannot give me one current example of that. Something like this in the reverse, where you've got a government policy that says, we are, here's an advantage, and if you're white, you qualify for it, but if you're not, you don't. There are plenty of current, current examples of, of laws that reserve special pr- privileges for those who are not white, but not for those who are white. Examples of the reverse. And these are just two of the most recent. So systemic racism, yeah, it, it is indeed a problem in the United States. It's just, it's not the sort of systemic racism that the racial justice activists want to talk about. Now let's get to our five headlines.
Well, if you're like me uh, and you're a sedentary lump on a log, then you spend a lot of time sitting down. Even if you're not a sedentary lump, lump on a log, you still spend a lot of time sitting down. And, and that means you need to think about the kind of chair you're sitting in. Uh, and that means you should consider X-Chair. X-Chair has you covered for your office chair needs. The secret is not only their patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back, but now, thanks to their XHMT technology, you can also get heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. Um, instead of your old, uncomfortable office chair, now you can look forward to spending hours sitting in their ultimate therapeutic massager. I think I mentioned a few days ago I was complaining about my uh, my back aches because that's the kind of content you get on this show. But um, and I, I have the, uh, the X chair right here, and I was enjoying the heating and massage feature, uh, and I found it to be very helpful, so I cannot recommend it enough. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchairwalsh.com now. That's the letter X, chairwalsh.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairwalsh.com now. Use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters as well. Again, that's xchairwalsh.com. All right, so, uh, you know, I, my, my wife and kids are away for a few days visiting my, uh, my sister-in-law, and that means I was on my own last night. And, you know, and you, you know me. You know what that means, okay? Things are about to get pretty crazy, especially down here, Nashville, nightlife. I mean, forget about it. It was, it was party time, to put it lightly. So basically, I ended up uh, watching a documentary about volcanoes, and then I fell asleep. Um, and it was, uh, that was it. It was really a pleasant evening, actually. And that, see, that's the thing. When, when you're married and, and you have kids, and then you get a night to yourself, at first, you always get that sort of like tinge of, of mischievous excitement, similar to, to how you felt when you were 17 and your parents made the cataclysmic mistake of leaving you alone for a weekend. Um, and you, you, you could feel that way for a second, and then, you, and then you, you say to yourself, oh, yeah, never mind. I'm old and boring. I forgot. It's all quite sad, really, but uh, the documentary was interesting. Uh, Werner Herzog, Into the Inferno. If you're looking for a documentary on volcanoes, I would recommend that one. All right, this is uh, from Reuters. It says, Facebook Incorporated's oversight board on Wednesday upheld the company's suspension of former U.S. President Donald Trump, but said the company was wrong to make the suspension indefinite and gave it six months to determine a proportionate response. Trump called the decision and his banning across tech practices platforms a total disgrace and said the companies would pay a political price. Um, and uh, so he's, he's still banned, at least for six months. And Trump is upset about that and says they're going to pay a price. Right. Well, first of all, two things here. It, it obviously is absurd to ban the former president um, from any social media platform, especially all of them as he currently is. It's absurd. It's 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 uh, dangerous. It's pretty terrifying. The kind of power these platforms have to have to have effectively erased a, a former president. He leaves office and he's gone. Um, and that's why they're doing it. And I, I think I think everyone knows that. Even if they won't admit it, this is this is obviously politically motivated. And they don't want to give him the platform back, especially if he's thinking about running again in 2024, um, because, and they, and they also don't want to be blamed by the media. Here's the thing, if, if, if Facebook and Twitter let Donald Trump back on, and then he runs in 2024 and wins, they're going to get blamed for that. 
by, by the sorts of people that they don't want blaming them for things. So the whole thing is, is totally wrong. However, you know, the reason why I can't generate a lot of anger and outrage over this to the same degree as other conservatives and other, and other you know, conservatives in media especially, very, very upset about the Trump Facebook ban and all of that, I can't get myself to feel all that upset about it because, as I have argued many times, Trump had the chance to do something to rein in big tech, and he didn't do anything or even try. And so now here he, he's, he's, here he is, impotent and powerless, hanging out at Mar-a-Lago, promising that they're going to pay a price. No, they're not going to pay a price, actually. You have no power right now. None. Doesn't matter what you say. You could have made them pay a price when you were the president of the United States. Republicans could have done something when they controlled the entire government with Trump at the top of it for two years. They didn't do anything. Nothing. What did they do during those two years when they controlled the whole government? What did they do about big tech? Did they do anything? Nothing. No. Not just about big tech. They didn't do anything about anything. They just didn't do it. They passed a tax cut. That's what they did. Well done, fellas. Great job. Gave us a tax cut. And uh, that was it. With Republican control of Congress for two years and then Republican control of the White House for four years, what do we get at the end of it? We get uh, tax cuts and then some other policies, uh, all of which have been were erased by the Biden administration like that. Gone. As far as making, making a lasting impact, doing something big and important and difficult, like reigning in big tech, for example, didn't even try. They talked about it. Republicans are talking about it again now when they have no power to do it. That's, that's, that is the Republican move. It's to wait until you have no power and then to start talking a big game about all these things. Ah, let me add them. If all, yeah, let, 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 you know, it's, it's, it is, it's like, it's like the, the kid in high school or middle school, you know, who starts talking a big game in class, acting like he wants to fight another kid when the teacher is right there and he knows the teacher is going to stop him. And then you find that kid outside of the classroom, like at the bus stop and he's, he's running for the hills. That's what the Republican Party is. That's what they are. They talk a big game. They become big, tough fighters and warriors when they know they can't do a damn thing anyway. Because they got the teacher in the class that's going to stop them. Put them in charge of the class. They actually have some authority now. And uh, they become pushovers, biding their time until they have no authority again. So yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not in the mood to cry any tears for um, any of them. This is what happens. You fed the alligator and then uh, it ate you, like that's 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 how that goes. All right. Here's something that does provoke um, my anger. This is a story from Nine News in Denver. I want to play the uh, local news report. 
and it's worth bringing to your attention. I'm actually hesitant to bring it to your attention a little bit because I may have trouble refraining from screaming obscenities um, at the conclusion of this clip. So I'll try my best, but let's, let's give it a listen. Traveling anywhere with a family has always been tough, but traveling these days is even tougher. The CDC says everyone aged two and up has to wear a mask on board a plane at all times. Orion, can you say hi? Three-year-old Orion Scott does pretty well with it, especially when you consider how difficult it might be for him. My son has sensory processing disorder, which means that sometimes he gets overwhelmed by different um, sensations like touch, texture. His mom, Caroline, says sometimes the mask can be too much. It's why she's got a doctor's note saying he might have a problem with his mask, but mom and dad know how to handle it. It's why she called Southwest's customer service department ahead of the family's flight out of DIA to visit Orion's 94-year-old great-grandma in Florida. She was told everything would be fine. When we actually got to our flight, we were told um, that there was an issue and they had to ask the supervisor to ask the captain's permission for us to board. All this time, his mother says Orion was doing fine, wearing the mask, seatbelt buckled. Came onto the plane and said that we needed to deplane because the captain did not feel comfortable with my son on the plane. And that was it. She says they were removed from the flight simply because she took that precaution to warn the airline about what might happen. We were trying to do the right thing and we were punished for it. The family spent nearly $2,000 booking new flights on a different airline for the next day. She says Orion was fine on that flight. In a statement today, Southwest told us they regret the inconvenience on the family and that customer service was reaching out to them. (sighs) Hold on. I'm cycling through all the things I can't say right now landing on something I can say. Um, yeah, okay. I told you we shouldn't have played that. This just makes me so angry. It's, it, it, is, it infuriates me in such a deep and visceral way. To treat people that way, to treat kids that way especially. You kicked him off the flight? He was obeying the rules. The, the, the stupid, useless... Um, rules that there's no reason for those rules to be in place in the first place, especially for a child that the kid already poses basically no risk to anyone as it is. And everybody else on the flight, by the way, like children, as we've said a million times, low risk group, you really don't have to worry about them statistically speaking in terms of COVID, but also everyone else on the flight. If you're an adult, you're wearing your mask, and we're at the point now in America where most people, you know, in, in, for most regions of the, of, of the country, if you wanted to get the vaccine, you, you've, you've probably gotten it by now. So anyone on that flight who really wanted a vaccine probably has it. Um, the people who haven't had the vaccine yet, for the most part, are people who, you know, either they don't want it or they're a little more hesitant about it or they're not that or they're just not that eager for whatever reason. So if you're an adult worried about COVID, uh, you wear your mask, you got your vaccine, it's even more of a reason. Why the hell does this kid need to wear a mask for your sake? But then on top of it, he's obeying the rules. The stupid, oppressive rules, he's obeying them. And you kick him off the flight out of the, the, the fear that he might not obey them in the future. 
because he's a three-year-old with sensory processing issues. Talk about discrimination. I mean, I hope, yeah, yeah, I'm sure Southwest is reaching out. You know, they're going to offer, you know, they'll offer offer a a rebate or something and, and, and they'll give you, you know, a couple of free flights in the future. Uh, that's not going to be enough. This family should own that airline when this lawsuit is done. This is a blatant case of discrimination. And there's no way that's legal. There is no way that it's legal for a, for a, for a company to refuse service to a child on the basis that he's a child with sensory processing issues. And so... Uh, you're, you're worried about what he might do and he might not follow, follow the rules at some point in your uh, in the future. There's no way that's legal. So I hope she, I hope this is what needs to happen. These, these kinds of rules, you need to fight them in the courts, take Southwest to the court, sue them for all they're worth. There's no defending this. All right. Um, and, I, and I really hope that captain is, is fired. And I, that's not something that I say very often. I don't often call for people to lose their jobs, but uh, this is someone, I don't know anything about the person. They may have served the company with distinction for years for all I know, but they should be fired for that. That is unforgivable. Um, all right, let's move to, let's see, Liz Cheney. Um, sorry, I just really don't care about this story at all. I had a, this Liz Cheney thing to talk about, and I, I don't care at all. So oh, we'll move to this instead. From, uh, from CNN, it says, The South Carolina House of Representatives passed a bill Wednesday that allows for firing squads to carry out death penalty sentences and makes elect, electru- uh, elect, electrocution. <laughs> That's what, I can't speak. Um, a more likely means of execution. Electrucian. It makes electrucian. Uh, the potential change in South Carolina law comes as states nationwide have hit barriers executing those on death row uh, due to problems administering lethal injections, the widely preferred method in the U.S. Difficulties finding the, the required drugs have essentially paused executions in many states, including South Carolina, which has not had an execution since 2011. And now with the uh, the bill, they're going to allow firing squad. That's going to be like the default option. But then you also have that. You have that option and also electrician, as I like to put it. You know, I think this is a good bill. Um, And the firing squad is far more efficient. And I also think it's far more humane. And it's not just a matter of it's efficient and it's more cost effective, right? Because when we're dealing with something like execution, that, that, that shouldn't be the primary concern. Um, but I think it's far more humane and dignified than lethal injection. Because the whole point of, a, of lethal injection, the reason why we've been doing it that way for so many years, is just to make us feel better. That's really what it's about. It's not about the person being executed. We, we, didn't, we didn't shift over from firing squad, hanging, you know, those kinds of methods to lethal injection for the sake of the accused. It's all for society so that we can feel better about it. And it it feels a little bit less like a person is being killed. 
Did we talk about medicalization? I was talking about the medicalization um, of anxiety yesterday, this problem of medicalizing things. Well, uh, with lethal injection, we sort of medicalized the process of execution. You put them down in a gurney, you have the, you know, you have the, the needle there. And it's just to kind of sanitize it and medicalize it and, again, make us, it, make us feel like someone isn't being executed, but they are. Someone is being killed. It's, it's, a, it's a, a messy, difficult thing. We're taking a life away. And I support it. I support the death penalty. I think it's necessary. It's a, it's a necessary tool for society to have. But um, you are killing someone. And I think we should have to face that. And firing squad is, you know, it's quick. And I, I would imagine it's as, it's as painless as an execution method can possibly be. But most importantly, it doesn't hide from what it is and doesn't allow us to hide from what it is. Uh, so I think that makes a lot of sense. All right, here's something that doesn't make sense. Number four, Mayor Bowser in D.C. has banned dancing in a move straight out of Footloose or really out of my own campaign platform when I run for dictator of the world. But here she is, you know, I, I, I'm banning, I, I, I ban dancing in, in principle because I'm, a, I'm opposed to dancing in principle as a theocratic fascist. Uh, I certainly wouldn't ban it for the reasons that she gives, but here she is justifying her dancing ban on CNN. Let's listen. I want to ask you about your new guidelines um, for reopening D.C. It's getting a lot of attention. Um, here's what you're saying. Beginning May 1st, multipurpose facilities and menus may host events such as weddings, provided that there may be no more than 25 percent capacity in any room or up to 250 people. Here's what's getting a lot of attention. Standing and dancing receptions are not allowed. What good is a wedding without dancing, Mayor, and why no dancing? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of good to a wedding, like people starting off their, their lives together and doing it in a safe way uh, and not doing it in a way that puts themselves or their guests in danger. And let me be clear, uh, on May 1st, we were proud of our residents and businesses who made conditions in D.C. such that we can start opening up these facilities. An alternate headline may be, now you can host a wedding uh, in Washington, D.C., a regional meeting. Uh, you can have uh, your friends and family for a family reunion and birthday parties at our hotels and restaurants. And just like our restaurant guidelines suggest is that you have to be uh, seated to uh, enjoy the restaurant. Um, I see that. I see that. Um, we'll give you a minute for your, your earpiece there. Thank you. Thank you, your eminence. Thank you. You're, you're allowing you're you're allowing your subjects to have a wedding. Thank you so much. We bow before you in gratitude. Empress, Empress Bowser, for your magnanimity. You are so generous, Empress Bowser. That's what she's saying. She's saying, well, you better, you better be, at least I'm letting you get married. You little brats, you should be grateful. I'm letting you get married. I'll let you have a regional meeting. A regional meeting. Not just a local meeting, but regional. The entire region is invited. I'll even let you have a family reunion as long as you're masked and uh, maintaining social distancing. But other than that, you can have a family reunion. Make sure the infants and newborns are wearing masks now, of course. 
Speaking of which, I'll let you have a baby in our city as well. Just make sure you put that mask on the baby as soon as it emerges from the birth canal. Safety first. You know, she never explains and isn't asked to explain um, how exactly, or, or rather, why um, the dancing ban was put in place at weddings. That question it is not insisted that she answer that question, which that, that would seem to be like the number one question when it comes to this issue we would want answered. Why exactly did you ban dancing? You know, all she says is that, uh, well, we, we want to have weddings and we want to do it in a way that's safe and is not going to put your guests in danger. Okay, explain to me how dancing puts your guests in danger. It puts them in danger of being embarrassed. Like myself, if I'm dragged to the dancing dance floor, uh, it puts me in danger. It's like a, a sort of a social danger of, of intense embarrassment, which is why I'm in favor of banning dancing for, for that reason. But what you, you mean it puts them in, in like some sort of medical danger? How? How does dancing spread COVID? Can you explain that, Empress? Now, she can't explain it. She's not asked to explain it. They never are. Seems like a fair question. Like, lay out the, the process exactly. Someone dances. So, step one, someone dances. Step three, everyone in the room dies of COVID. What happens in step two? You've skipped over something. I need to know what happens there. How did you get from one to three here? She was pressed a little bit more um, lightly, and she said that she's still uh, given given more. Actually, she's she's pressed on whether she would allow dancing in the future, even after everyone is vaccinated, and she still wouldn't commit even then. Uh, let's listen to that. Is there dancing allowed in New Mexico, Governor? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're socially distanced and you're wearing a mask and you meet the other uh, requirements with our level of vaccinations, mm-hmm. um, yes. But okay. I will say. Right. And, and I want to so, give the mayor, uh, it takes courage to be really clear about what constitutes high risk activities and behaviors. And it is something that Democratic governors yes. are leading in this country evidence based. I, I hear you. But, but Mayor, just just is there any way that you would reconsider with masks on and say a, 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 a card that shows fully vaccinated that you'd allow dancing? We're absolutely considering opening more activity uh, as our case rates go down and our vaccination rates go up. And that's in our hotels uh, and that's in our other venues. Understood. Uh, Mayor Bowser, Governor uh, Lujan Grisham, thank you very much for uh, covering all of these topics with us. Great to see you. Why did I choose all of the most infuriating video clips to play in one show. I'm going to have an aneurysm. I'm going to have a heart attack right here in front of all of you. We are actually listening to governors and mayors talk about whether people in their states and cities should be allowed to dance. That's what we're talking about here. That's what's happening in the United States of America circa 2021. Even if people are wearing a mask and they present a card showing they're fully vaccinated, Empress Bowser says they still can't necessarily dance. And then the other woman there uh, on the panel gives Bowser credit, says it it takes courage 
to be clear about what behavior constitutes high-risk activities. How is she being clear? She's not being clear at all. Oh, but at least the other woman, what was it, the New Mexico governor, in her generosity, she will allow you to dance as long as you're masked and socially di- masked, socially distanced dancing. I mean, you might as well not have any dancing at all. I cannot imagine how absolutely creepy it must that look. I want to see what that even looks like. If any, if any, um, you know, any, any, any people who are so cowed and submissive that they would listen to these to these uh, edicts when they have a wedding reception, because of course the right thing to do, by the way, if you're having a wedding reception in D.C., is to ignore this completely and do what you're going to do, and let her send the goons in to break up your wedding and start arresting people for dancing. Let her do that. Force her to do that. Force her to send people into a wedding reception and arrest and cite them for dancing. But those who are uh, actually pathetic enough to listen to this, if they're you know in New Mexico, I, I want to. I, I would like to see what that looks like. Just because I haven't had the aneurysm quite quite yet, and I want to. I want to be pushed over the edge. What does it look like? Socially distanced, masked dancing. You got to present your vaccine card on your way up to the dance floor. There's a there's a bouncer standing there. Present your card. And then you and maybe there's like hula hoops on the ground and you have to dance within them. You know, you each you each have your little circle where you can dance. I don't know if they if they prescribe specific dance moves you're allowed to do and not do because certain dance moves might spread covid more than others. Twerking for example, I'm not sure if that's a high-risk or a low-risk dancing activity. I don't know. You know, these are, we need to get, maybe we need to get Fauci in here to talk about that. Tell us. Can you twerk um, and not spread COVID, or will that spread COVID? Good Lord in heaven. We were once a great nation. You know that? It's shocking to realize, but we were once a great nation. We know there are so many companies out there that are, are run by people who do not believe the same things that uh, that you do, and that's why you got to look for the companies that you know that stand for the same values as you. And it makes it a lot easier when that company is Redneck Riviera Whiskey because you're getting you know you're getting the it, it's you got a company that shares your values. But you're also getting a delicious whiskey at the same time. You can't ask for anything better. Uh, Redneck Riviera Whiskey is your whiskey, sourced from America's heartland, blended and bottled in Kentucky. Redneck Riviera Whiskey is the smoothest whiskey available, and it is very smooth and delicious as well. I can attest to that. From the glass to the cork and whiskey inside, it's 100% made in America, as all whiskey should, in my personal opinion. The Redneck Riviera brand is also 100% owned by John Rich. This isn't just another celebrity-endorsed brand. A portion of all profits proudly benefit the Folds of Honor To date, Redneck Riviera Whiskey has funded over 110 college grants for kids who have lost a mom or dad while serving our country. Redneck Riviera Whiskey can be found in 48 states and over uh, 11,000 retail stores like Walmart, Winn-Dixie, Publix, Safeway, uh, Specs, and many others. You just got to try. Look, I can't emphasize enough. It's also really, really good. And I'm kind of a whiskey snob, I admit. So for more information or to find a store near you, visit RedneckRiviera.com. That's RedneckRiviera.com. And make sure to drink American. Also, Redneck Riviera Whiskey is a distilled spirit with 40% ABV. Redneck Spirits Group is responsible for this ad and is located at 10917 Old Harrods Wood Circle, Louisville, Kentucky, 
All right, let's move now to, uh, I actually have other headlines. I just got to, I got to move on to, to reading the comments. Um, if I have them here. Yes, I do. Erica says, I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in high school. Now I see that my anxiety was not irrational, but a natural reaction to the cesspool that public schools are. My body and mind were responding to being indoctrinated. Yeah, and you raise a really important point because, you know, so you, as I said yesterday, it's 50 million adults have been diagnosed with mental disorders. Uh, like once that amounts to one in five. And then it's one in six or one in seven children have been diagnosed. Um, and we're pushing towards 20 million. I think we're at 17 or 18 million children who have been diagnosed with mental disorders. And a great many of them are, of course, in public school. And it's their experience in public school, um, their lack of, uh, of uh, you know, their inability to acclimate or to thrive in that context of public school that leads to them being diagnosed as mentally disordered, which is outrageous and, and horrific that we're doing that to kids. Because, yeah, it, public school is a very specific and tailored sort of environment that is not suited for all kids. In fact, lots of kids naturally will not acclimate to it and will not thrive in it. They won't thrive in it academically and they won't thrive in it socially. You're really the exception as a child if you do. Most kids struggle. And rather than considering whether there's a problem with the system itself and with the environment and with the way we're approaching education. Instead, we say, oh, no, uh, if kids don't, don't do well in this environment, clearly they're diseased. So let's put them on pills. Uh, another comment says, Matt, for what it's worth, I agree with your stance on anxiety and your comments on mental disorders. There is now a mental disorder called oppositional defiance disorder. So it is now considered a mental disorder if one has a child or teen who is angry, defiant, and argues a lot. Apparently, the experts who came up with this have never been a parent. I suspect there will be an oppositional chore disorder to be declared in the near future as well. Yeah, oppositional defiant disorder. That's why I say 300 mental disorders listed in the DSM. It might be more than that now. I think there was a DSM-4 that had 300, and now it's DSM-5. So, um, But about 300 mental disorders listed, and so many of them are things like this. Oppositional defiant disorder. So a child who's defiant and opposes his parents' authority is, has a disorder. And, of course, we'll be told, like we're told with all of these things, that, no, it's, yes, it's, it's normal for kids to be defiant sometimes, but um, there's an imaginary line that we've drawn here. And uh, if the kids are defiant beyond that line, so defiance on this side of the line is okay and natural, but if they're too defiant, if they cross that defiance line, now it's a disorder. Who decides that? Who decides where the line is drawn? Why should we listen to whoever drew that line? That line. More questions that are that are not answered. Jose Herrera says, "Hey Matt, are you a fan of avocados?" Uh, I am indeed a very pro. We are we are pro avocado in my household. We fly a avocado pride flag. Very, very, very open to avocados. Um, Truth Seeker says, honestly, in regards to the child being paddled, I think this punishment should, should be normalized again. Um, Lord, that brought back memories for me. I was paddled religiously K through eighth grade. Granted, I was born in 82. Spare the rod, spoil the child. But that's why I distinguish between 
corporal punishment, spanking in the home and at school. And I think those are two, talk about environments, those are two very different environments and contexts. If you want to use corporal punishment as a parent, that's one thing. But it is simply a power and a tool that I wouldn't entrust to the government school system. I'm not giving government employees the authority to strike my child, to hit my child. That's, I do not trust them with that authority. I don't know about you. I don't. Joe Wright says, Matt is showing that he's just a liberal. He was, that's me all right. Such a liberal. Everything I say, right? Um, he was raised in a big city with a liberal mindset. I wasn't raised in a big city, but okay. I come from small town America where you could whip any kid you see misbehaving. It didn't matter if they were your kid or not. And if you found out that your kid was whipped by another parent when you gave them, well, then you gave them another whipping because you know they deserve it. (laughs) Yeah, big city Walsh. That's me. Big city liberal. You know, I got my hair, my hair is dyed pink. Usually I, I, if it weren't for the show, it'd be dyed pink. Big time liberal. Everyone knows that about me. Uh, Yeah, no, let me just say, if you assault my child, if you lay a hand on my child, then I'm going to lay my hands on you. That's going to be my my attitude. If if my kid comes home and tells me that another adult in the neighborhood hit him, I'm going to find that adult and I'm going to hit you harder. That's the way that's going to go. That's not a liberal mindset, okay? That is a father's mindset. I'm a father. The idea that you'd let just any old creepy stranger lay hands on your child? That's insane. What kind of parent would do that? You say to the neighbor, oh yeah, hey, uh, here's my kid. Any of you want to hit him, go ahead. It's fine. Do you see how crazy that is? Do, Do you? If that's the way things were growing up for you, it was wrong and it was crazy. And if that's the attitude your parents had, it was a bad attitude. Really bad. I'm old-fashioned in a lot of things, but I will say that just because things were done a certain way a long time ago, that doesn't automatically make them better. So if this was the way things were growing up for you, then you were being neglected and abused, I hate to tell you. Um, so that's something you might want to work through. But, but no, I, I do not grant permission to any stranger to just walk up and hit my kid. You do that, and there's going to be serious consequences that you're going to pay. And um, finally, oh yeah, the, so a, a couple of, we, we played that clip yesterday of uh, juror number 52, Brandon Mitchell, and when he was being interviewed and he was revealing how he uh, ended up on, uh, on the jury, he wanted to be on the jury because it was a historic moment and he wanted to push for social change. And then of course we find out that he was attending BLM rallies and George Floyd t-shirts and everything. But uh, a few commenters pointed out, like D.T. Barnes here leads a comment that says, did he call the other jurors a cast, like a cast of actors? And I did notice that, and I I forgot to mention it. When we played the clip, in the interview, Brandon Mitchell is talking about the other jurors, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard, too. He actually calls them the cast, like cast members in a play. Very revealing about his attitude. Um... And perhaps the attitude of the other jurors, although we haven't heard from them yet. You know, because you hear us constantly bragging about it, that uh, the Daily Wire is growing and we're very excited about its growth. Um, 
And it's, that's only going to continue into the future. Uh, we, you know, we have the movie deal with Gina Carano. We, we have a talk show, talk show hosted by Candace Owens. We released our first feature film, Run, Hide, Fight. Plenty more to come. And we want to make sure that we include you in our future plans. Every day on my show, I talk about a lot of amazing products and services from sponsors that I love and use. But we want to get to know you better so we can choose our sponsors with you in mind. So please go to dailywire.com Walsh and fill out my audience survey to tell us a little bit about yourself. And to sweeten the pot, you're going to be eligible to win a $1,000 gift card if you complete the survey. But uh, you only get eligible one time per survey. Uh, you can only sur- complete the survey once and, and, and be eligible once. Per show, that is. So that means you can listen to Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin, get access to their surveys, take their surveys as well, and you get entered again for that uh, gift card. Again, my survey link is dailywire.com slash Walsh. And uh, listen, if you haven't already joined Daily Wire, you should hurry up because today is the absolute last chance to get 25% off a new membership with code Candice at dailywire.com slash subscribe. If you missed Tuesday's episode of Candice, don't worry. The full interview with President Donald Trump is available for Daily Wire members They cover everything from the media's impact on the president's family to the likelihood of a Trump-Owens ticket in 2024. If you want to watch that and all the other um, great content that Daily Wire has to offer for subscribers, today's your last chance. Dailywire.com slash subscribe, code Candace. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today our daily cancellation refers back to yesterday's cancellation, though we will not rehash that subject. Yesterday in this segment, we discussed anxiety disorder, and I explained why I believe that anxiety disorder is a category error. Um, I don't think that anxiety is a disorder or a mental illness, just as I don't think that ADHD is a disorder. And since I'm already pissing people off, I might as well tell you that I also don't think that depression is a mental illness or disorder. I think that a great many of the things which we have decided to call mental disorders actually don't belong under that umbrella. As I argued, we are medicalizing and diseaseifying. yes, I'm making that word up, fine, uh, normal, if painful and difficult, aspects of the human condition and the human experience. Anxiety is an essential facet of being human. It's a fundamental aspect of consciousness. It comes with being a conscious being. It comes with the territory. It's not an illness, and we shouldn't call it that, which isn't to say that those who struggle with it shouldn't seek help or should be dismissed. Far from it. My argument actually empathizes with the people struggling with anxiety. I would argue that calling them mentally ill is what creates stigma. That is what is isolating. And it does that unnecessarily as anxiety is not a sickness, except in the philosophical or spiritual sense that someone like Kierkegaard would have described it. That was the argument for yesterday. And you can go back and listen to that segment if you want to hear me flesh it out in excruciatingly long detail. Today, I'd like to address, and of course cancel, the most common response I've heard to that argument. And it's worth addressing because this is the most common response you'll hear to almost any argument you make on almost any subject these days. People have been conditioned to react a certain way to ideas that they find objectionable or discomforting. The response, paraphrased, goes like this. Well, Matt, you're only saying that because you've never experienced anxiety like I have. If you only had my experience, you'd be saying something totally different. Anyone who's had my personal experiences, which are so much more profound and enlightening than your experiences, would, of course, come to all the same conclusions as me. That's the basic paraphrase. Uh, just for fun, I'll give some real examples of this quote unquote argument from my Twitter and YouTube comments. Probably not necessary because you know what I'm talking about, but here are a few anyway. Uh, one, there's varying forms of anxiety, Matt, just because you live your perfect, comfortable cookie cutter life doesn't mean everyone else has the same privilege. Two, I literally have moments where I have to repeat things to get anxious thoughts out of my head. I've been struggling with panic attacks and anxiety my entire life. 
You're lucky you haven't had to deal with anxiety disorders because they're hell. Please educate yourself. Three, sounds like you don't have a lot of experience with the human condition. Being covered with privilege will do that. Four, I'd challenge Matt to live a day in my shoes and then spew this BS. Five, this piece of S has never known anyone with debilitating panic attacks, and it shows. But hey, he knows about the human condition, so he's more qualified than doctors, apparently. And six, man, F you. Eat my entire You clearly don't live with an anxiety disorder, you ableist effing pile of dog S. Okay, you get the idea. As I said, hundreds of people have responded to me just like that. And you'll hear a version of this response to nearly any topic or any argument you make on any topic. The person who counters in this way is doing three things, right? First, he is making completely baseless assumptions about your personal experience based on the point of view that you've expressed. Second, he's declaring that his own personal experience grants him special authority that automatically supersedes your own. And third, for good measure, he's using emotional blackmail to shut down the conversation. He's presenting his own victimhood as sort of a trump card. It's the old, my life is harder than yours, which means I'm right, but even if, it's, but even if I'm not right, how dare you say that I'm not right, given that my life is so hard already, tactic. So here's what I'll say to all of that, and I'm addressing this now directly to all of those who have used this strategy in response to me or in response to anyone. To begin with, you have no idea what I have experienced. You have, you assume that I have not had experiences like yours because your mind is so shallow and narrow that you can't even conceive of the possibility that a person might have similar experiences and yet draw different conclusions from it. You're also a narcissist. So you assume that your struggles are harder than everyone else's struggles and your pain is so much deeper than everybody else's pains and your, and your life is more complex and dramatic than everybody else's life. All of that might be true, but it's probably not. Most likely your struggles are about on par with most people in the modern world, which isn't, which, which isn't to say that you've experienced no pain. Life is pain, as the saying goes, but you hold yours up like a trophy. And you brag of its immensity and complexity. And that's what makes me suspect that it's not all you crack it up to be. As a general rule, people who really suffer don't use their suffering to win arguments on Twitter. But all of this is really beside the point. We're talking about a general issue. See, we're not talking about you specifically. Believe it or not, not every conversation is about you. In fact, almost every conversation that has ever been had on this planet or ever will be had has not been about you and will not be about you. You are irrelevant to almost everything that has ever been said by anyone. Same goes for me. Same goes for any individual person. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it'll do you good. In this case, we're having a mostly philosophical conversation. We're debating the nature of anxiety and of the human condition. And we're trying to figure out what the word disorder really means and how and whether a thought process can be properly called disordered. You're perfectly free to disagree with my take on all these questions. I, I might be totally wrong. I realize I'm in the minority here. I realize that almost the entire psychiatric industry is on the other side of this issue. I realize that most doctors are on the other side of this issue. I realize that most people in general are on the other side of this issue. That's fine. I I'm happy to hear your argument. If I didn't want to hear opposing views, I wouldn't be saying stuff like this out loud. So I'm happy to hear any counter-argument, especially ones that make me question my assumptions. Those are interesting. Those are exciting. I actually like it when someone 
presents a counter argument to me that makes me go, wait a second. Was I wrong about everything I just said? I like that. I think that's fun. But if you're only able to engage in this conversation through a mixture of straw man fallacies and emotionally manipulative personal anecdotes, then I would ask you to sit this one out. In fact, I would say, can you sit out every conversation until you learn how to have a conversation that doesn't revolve around your own self-obsession? Because you're boring me. And you are the kind of person who makes it impossible for people to have interesting, thoughtful, productive dialogues in this country. Because in every conversation, anytime anyone makes any principled, generalized point, here you come in riding on your your horse saying, what about me? Here's my anecdote. Well, this doesn't apply to me personally. Let me tell you all about me and what I've been through. Not relevant. You're ruining the conversation. Please stop. Also, you're canceled. So there's that too. And we will leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. A Kentucky man pulls a gun on BLM thugs as they attempt to disrupt his dinner. Facebook doubles down on its censorship of Donald Trump. And the U.S. population continues to die. For that hopeful, happy show, head on over to The Michael Knowles Show.